The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show. All persons described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matters such as violence and graphic descriptions along with adult language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On October 16th, 1980, a woman is found dead in rural Washington County, Arkansas. She was shot behind her right ear and her killer then backed over her body while leaving the scene. Her case remains unsolved to this day. Join us tonight as we discuss her case with two private investigators near Fayetteville, Arkansas. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruise Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Gail Vaught. Sometime around midnight on October 16, 1980, Gail Jean Vaught was brutally shot behind her right ear with a 22 caliber pistol. She was then crushed by the murderer's vehicle when they backed over her body while exiting the desolate country road in rural Washington County, Arkansas. Gail was just 21 years old with a great job and living in Fayetteville, Arkansas before her body was found on a logging road by a passerby around 10 a.m. the next day. Join us as I, a certified Arkansas private investigator, with the help of numerous other investigators, work to solve this 42-year-old homicide, a case that's wrought with tales of Dixie Mafia, drug trafficking, corrupt law enforcement, and prominent business leaders in what some might call just another Ozark Mountain Murder. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Tonight we have two special guests with us, two private investigators from Fayetteville. We're back in Arkansas, y'all. That's right. We're back in Arkansas. We we keep going to the well when we need something good. But we were um, graciously contacted by Mr. Billy Bell and his sidekick, Elaine, or maybe Elaine's sidekick is Billy. We ain't figured that one out yet. But we have got a doozy of a case for y'all tonight. These two private investigators have championed Gail's calls, I guess is a good way to put it. Uh, this is an unsolved mystery from 1980. Um, Gail was 21 years old when she passed, and we'll just get into, y'all can go ahead and just tell us a little bit about what kind of person Gail was and how she came to move to Fayetteville, because she wasn't originally from there, was she? No, she wasn't, and thank you guys for uh, having us on. Like you say, we picked this this case up and doing our best to resolve it for the family that was surviving family of Gail Vaught. Yeah, Gail was originally born in Mountain Burr, uh, Arkansas, which is about, I don't know, 30 minutes south of Fayetteville on Highway 71 between Fayetteville and Fort Smith. And small town, small Ozark Mountain Hamlet town. And uh, she was, you know, raised up as a country girl and 
and uh, actually was a phenomenal basketball player. She even played college ball for one year, and then she changed paths and went to work on a road crew and ended up in Fayetteville, uh, working on Highway 71 bypass. And in October, she was murdered and left for dead on an old logging road. So, And her family, both of her parents have since passed, and her sister, Janet, uh, asked us to uh, take a look at it, and that's what uh, Elaine and I are, are doing, and looking forward to talking about it. And how did y'all, were y'all approached by her, or had you heard of the case before you were approached, and you had kind of, you know, thought, well, like most cases we cover in Arkansas, you were like, hey, something doesn't smell right. Yeah. Well, I think I spoke to you guys a few years ago about a 1984 case that I was working in. Yeah, in my research on that case, I came across a memorandum that was completed by the Arkansas State Police CID, and it mentioned some of the same players that was in my 84 case, having been suspected of murdering Gail. So just, you know, running that lead to ground, contacted uh, her nearest living relative, who happened to be Janet, her sister, and she was living down in Texas. And once we started talking, she was like, well, do you think you could work on Gail's case? And that was in 2016. You had sent me, we had kind of, just to give a a peek behind the curtain here, this has kind of been in the works for, what, almost a year? Me and you have been discussing this case. You had gotten your hands on the investigative file, and uh, that was the first time that I had the, I guess, pleasure is what you can say, (laughs) of trying to decipher a police investigation file. There is no rhyme or reason of how their filing filing system works. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes you get them and they're squared away. But I think in these parts, you know, they're purposefully scattered. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of fun. There's another case out there that uh, they finally got the case file after a conviction, and it's taken, I think, two months for them to even get to where they can discuss what they found. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that was because I got frustrated at first. You had sent me the the case file, and so I I was like, I'm literally going to have to print this whole thing to keep it straight. It was kind of like that time when Coach was, he had to read the Old Testament. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the these and the thous got him. <laughs> yeah, for damn sure. So, Elaine, how did you come about? Were you also just, did uh, Billy just sweep oh. you in? And he has bragged on you off air, of course, about your uh, analytical skills and how well you can organize things. So how did you get tangled in this web? Um, I'm still trying to figure that part out. (laughs) (laughs) But as Billy said, uh, we are both from the same Southern Arkansas town. And he had asked me to look at his previous case. And, you know, I told him it was pretty interesting. And he knows I listen to crime podcasts and I watch all those shows and he kind of looped me in and sent me a Dropbox file and asked me if I could try to take a look at it and p- piece it together. And like you said, it was definitely a puzzle and I started getting deeper and deeper in it and making notes. I had a notepad and I just started 
writing down people that I thought he needed to talk to that weren't questioned back in 1980 and really just trying to do a mental picture of drawing lines together. I told him I needed to get a, a pin, pin board with the string and start making connections because it was a very complicated file to try to go through. It was, and that um, was one thing that I noticed was just you've got some fringe players out there, and so you're trying to keep names straight. And that, I I have a notebook dedicated to this uh, <laughs> this case file. So, but there's you know Billy and I had talked a couple of times, and some information that he shared with me. It's just I'm with you. I, this will consume you a whole wall of my house could have been consumed with red string and pens and photos and interview papers and but it's it is a wild case and the thing that i noticed also just trying to do some background research on it it's not very well publicized i i think i found maybe two articles back from when it happened and it was just very kind of vanilla well that's that's been the enigma you know with this case, you know, one of the things that I found early on, just like you did, is that if you go, you know, typically states have, you know, the top 10 unsolved old cases. I mean, especially in the last five, six years, you know, with true crime being so popular. Yeah. But Arkansas had, you know, Arkansas had that one, right? But, uh, yeah, Gail Vaught wasn't anywhere near it. No one knew anything. No one, as far as I know ever showed any interest besides Jen, her sister. And, and she kind of kept the case, that. her mom and her sister is the one that kind of kept the case alive, just trying to, not necessarily yeah, in the, claws. right, not necessarily in the press, but they were, they were their own investigative team. For, yeah, and they were pressing uh, law enforcement, Washington County Sheriff's Department. And uh, from time, you know, every time, you know, they would talk to the same guy, who handled it? He was still there in 1980. For, I think he retired finally in 2018. He had, I want to say, 40 plus years on on the county sheriff's department, and the, it was the same answer every time. Janet and before her, her mom. Her mom died in 1987, so it was seven years after Gail's death. But you know, she she started it, then Janet picked it up. And one of the things, and we'll get into, but there's biologicals that was left at the crime scene. Obviously, 1980 DNA was, you know, 10 years from even being thought about. But at the time, they used biological specimens to type blood, so forth and so on. So there was uh, uh, semen left at the crime scene in a condom, which law enforcement gathered as evidence and submitted to the crime lab. Well, from 1982 on, every time the Vaught family would check in, there was nothing, or actually later on when DNA came about, the Vaught family would start asking about it. I was destroyed, you know, sorry, you know, and that was it. And then we, we later find that, wow, there is a slide that has that semen on it, so there's still hope. And that's what we're currently awaiting right now. I'm glad you mentioned the the biologicals because I remember one of the big things in the Atlanta child murders were them typing his blood to one of the crime scenes and then also one of the victims, they typed his blood into the station wagon. And so a lot of people just, especially that listen to true crime podcasts now, I mean, it's 
it's not always been DNA out there. So the fact that it did survive is amazing, but also it's funny, you know, it's kind of like the Rebecca Gould case. There was some things that they, oh, well, we magically found this when we, we went and looked in the file and same thing. They had an investigator that was, had blinders on in that case. And once they got a fresh yeah. set of eyes on it within 12 months, they had a suspect. So hopefully, hopefully y'all can yes help some help this sister out but let's get back to um just gail in general how was how did she become i I don't know not necessarily involved but how did she get a job working as a you know as she was running an asphalt paper was she not yeah yeah it's pretty cool too uh well like i said she's a country girl she grew up on a chicken farm and in mountain Berg. Arkansas, and she was the youngest of, I think, four. And uh, she uh, she worked on the farm with her daddy. She was a tall girl. She was, like I said, she played college ball. She was 6'2", yeah. and beautiful. Yeah, but she was just a country girl, and I guess, she, you know, she didn't want to, whatever, you know, females were doing back then, <clears throat> she wasn't interested in that. She wanted to go to work. So she got on, on with the road crew. D.B. Hill Construction, headquartered out of Little Rock. And she got on with them right after she left college in 78, working down in the Fort Smith Van Buren area. And then, I want, and then like late 79, early 80, she transferred up to Fayetteville uh, to work on uh, the Highway 71 bypass. So, and she was, uh, she was, yeah, she was one of those big roller operators or grader operators or something. So. Yeah, I remember uh, looking through the the case file and the interviews that some of them had uh, conducted with some of the people she worked with. I, the way I read it, and I may be completely off base, but she could operate just about anything on the yard and was not scared to do so. I know, and that just kind of gives you a, a, a you know an understanding of you know she she's not going to be that easy to kill, right? So uh, that that plays into our case also is the the evidence that will, or the pieces that Elaine and I have been trying to put together and trying to understand what happened. So she was, and to get into that just a tad, she was dating a guy who was a known drug dealer. So this is 1980. And, uh, you know, pot was the big thing. Cocaine was coming out, but cocaine was mostly a, a rich person's candy. Yes. But pot was a big deal. And if you were a criminal, right, chances are you were, you were moving some pot or you were moving speed, right? Uh, and that that's what this guy did. His name was Ray Foreman. And uh, she moved in with him. And it's been alluded to through various witness statements that she was uh, maybe in the game. That she was maybe you know, working in the drug trade and or possibly informing. And that may be a motive for which she was murdered. And that's something we're looking at. And that's one of the angles that I didn't even, when I first looked at the case file that I didn't even think about is either her being an informant or maybe someone in her circle there being an informant. But that would make sense with, kind of how this has kind of just been swept under the rug. 
Yeah, because it wasn't a sexual crime. It wasn't a crime of passion. No. It wasn't over somebody cheating on somebody. I mean, generally, murder only happens for a handful of reasons. So when you take those away, what's left? Well, you know, it depends. If you're in the drug game, that opens up some uh, possibilities. Elaine has did a good job of trying to get in to Gail's persona. Uh, Elaine, what can you say about uh, Gail and who she was at the time and what she was about? You know, I could relate to Gail a little bit um, in regards to being from a small town, um, wanting to get away, do her own kind of thing. But she obviously just got into that wrong crowd and wasn't sure how to possibly get out of it because some of the interviews suggest that she may have been trying to get out. And that's how we started down this road of possibly being a CI or somebody else in the group being a CI. Um, But, you know, I just tried to think like a 21 year old, obviously I'm not that young anymore, but I tried to, put myself in her shoes and think, well, what would I do when I was working through a timeline of that week and that day trying to match up the timeline between her and Ray Foreman? And it just didn't make sense to me being a female cooking dinner, you know, and it was suggested that she was cooking dinner and you know, somehow she got taken from the house, but she had a jacket on. And I, that was the first thing I brought to Billy. I said, who is making dinner in their house wearing a coat? And she but lived, no didn't she live, they kind of rented like a, a basement apartment from an older couple. Yes. And so that was another thing that caught my attention too. I just, it, it's crazy how you keyed in on the, but that's the thing, you know, me. Me and Billy and Coach, we can sit here and talk about stuff all the time, but we don't have that female's perspective about, okay, something just happened. Speak for yourself, pal. <laughs> I'm sorry. He's in touch with his feminine side. I am I'm at peace with my feminine <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, that was – it's just something that we wouldn't have thought of. But you're right. It's like it was just an interruption, and it, it, it was before the days of – cell phones and things like that. So um, and to give, to give the listeners a little bit more insight. So she and Ray had spent the whole day together and, you know, she was in road construction and it was raining. Right. So they just spent the day together. They went and picked up a television that they had uh, turned in for repair. Right. Uh, they had money left over for what the television cost. And they went and bought ice cream that Thursday of October 16th. And then they go home. Now, granted, a lot of this is from Ray's perspective, right? So you got to take that with a grain of salt. But his claim is, is then they went home and he wanted brown beans. And Elaine, what was it? Uh, didn't she go to the store to get the beans or something? Yes. She went to the store to get the beans and I believe a pot as well. You have to keep reminding people, I would think, Back then, she didn't have a pot for beans. She's renting it from an older couple. Maybe they've got a pot she can borrow. They are obviously letting her and Ray both use their telephone because right. some, someone had called in, I think, in one of the 
one of the interviews I had read in the file, somebody had called in and they were like, we'll leave a message. He's not here. And then he actually was there. And so that's a whole nother angle that I know y'all yeah, will get into. Yeah. And the people that own the house, uh, Barry, and uh, I believe it was Sue Frizzell. And they were about the same age, maybe in their later twenties. And, uh, so she goes and gets these beans at the store, comes back. And while he, she was gone, Ray got a phone call from another uh, drug dealer and he needed Ray to come get him to go make a drug deal. So then Ray tells it that he just took off, be back in time by the beans were done. And, but he didn't ever come back. And while she, so the timeline was is well, after Ray left conveniently, between that time and about, well, 10 o'clock the next morning, someone came in, snatched Gail. She had her coat on and she didn't have her shoes on. And she was found about four miles to the west on a logging road, murdered, having been crushed by a vehicle. And uh, her pants were, she was nude from the waist down. There was uh, evidence of sexual assault because there was a condom with semen in it, which is, again, odd. And she was dead. So that's the mystery. And then trying to figure out by the case file of everyone they spoke with and then talking to people today, which uh, we've done. Yeah, and then... That's where we are. Elaine, was there anything else that kind of stood out from for you when you kind of try to put yourself in her shoes that night or, or just in general working construction? You know, reading the interviews from the people she worked with, it seemed like she was pretty well respected by a lot of the guys that worked at the road crew, which suggested that she could probably hold her own, um, which I can relate to a little bit. I grew up with an older brother, and they tend to make you a little thick-skinned and tough around the edges. Yeah, they do. So, <laughs> so like Billy said, um, we were like, man, you know, how could somebody come in and get this six-foot-two girl out of her house? And I just thought, you know, being a 21-year-old, I'm not leaving the house unless it's somebody I know. And I'm not opening the door for somebody unless it's somebody I know. So that's kind of the route I started going down with Billy. I said, you know what? Being a young female in a house by yourself, even if you could take care of yourself, you're not going to open the door for somebody you just don't know to come in the house. So that led me down looking at people that he either worked with or was an acquaintance with. And put her coat on. That, that's the oddest thing, I guess, to me is maybe, and I, I know you just hang on one thing sometimes, but the coat, I think there kind of echoes what Elaine said about knowing someone, but it almost seems like that she she may not have known them well enough to invite them in. She just grabbed a coat and stepped outside to kind of talk, and then that's how they got her out of the house because that would kind of explain why she kind of put a coat on but didn't put shoes and, and socks on. But again, I agree with you, though. She had to know someone. She knew them well enough that she was disarmed by seeing their face. Exactly. And then the the list of suspects runs the game. Right. And well, before we get there, Elaine, uh, talk about her, her shoes, not having any shoes on. 
Yeah. So I know with the coat thing, that's something I kind of ran with Billy, you know, I thought, well, maybe she had her shoes next to the door. You know, a lot of times when you come home, you take your shoes off. So maybe if somebody showed up at the house, she went to grab a jacket because it was October. It was raining. So she went to get, grab a jacket and then maybe she was going to put her shoes on at the door when either she was shot behind the ear or she was taken advantage of and pulled out the door or something like that. Um, but, you know, she she was a tall girl. So those shoes, um, I think in one interview with somebody, they suggested that Gail was healed for her shoes and when I heard that, I just laughed at Billy. I said, you know what? I don't know how many girls would probably fit the shoes that a six-foot-tall yeah, uh, woman wears. I, <laughs> I have a... And uh, that, was a, that was a former detective on this case. <laughs> and that's what's laughable about some of these people. They don't even think about what comes out of their mouth. And I, Exactly. I coached high school softball, and we had some decently tall young ladies on those teams. And... um I can tell you once they approach six foot, those shoes are, she's buying them off the men's rack. And so no lady is going after her shoes. I can tell you that. That's a fact. But yeah, we, um, was there anything else, Elaine, that kind of stood out to you just from the perspective of her cooking dinner and then kind of just being caught off guard maybe that night? Um, not, not, Really, in regards to, you know, the cooking of the dinner and being caught off guard, I know we kind of went back and forth regarding her lending her Jeep to Ray just because there were a lot of interviews regarding that Jeep was her baby. And she took care of that Jeep. She didn't let anybody drive that Jeep. And for her to let him leave in it, was a pretty big standout for both of us. Um, yeah, and that's another awful or awfully convenient thing, right? So he, he drove a, I think, it, what was it, Elaine, a 50, it's like a 57, 58 Chevrolet, which was common in 1980. You know, I was I was 15. I and, remember those trucks, and they were cool. There was something about Three. the battery. Was that what? Yeah, his, yeah, he couldn't get it started. Right. He couldn't get it started to go get his drug dealing buddy. So he asked Gail to use her brand new, well, it was 1978 CJ7, I think. And that was a sweet, it was a renegade. Yeah. It was gray with blue trim. And to Elaine's point, there's, I bet you there's at least four or five statements in there about just that. How particular she was, how no one drove. Anywhere she went, she drove. And then it took two people. It took two people to load her. Right? I bet you she was every bit of 150, if not 160. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Right? And then the only equalizer you've got if if you are smaller would be your strength or a weapon. And right. It, but but it, like you said, this kind of the evidence kind of leads you to that there is definitely another party. There's two members yes. trying to get her where she was found. Yes. And, you know, and we also explore the the political corruption, the law enforcement corruption that was just pervasive in Arkansas, which you guys have told stories, told, talked about cases on that. Uh, Fami Malik, 
was the yeah. uh that's what the, i was about to ask medical you. examiner yeah <laughs> i was about to ask you was this is this another fami malik how could he well, uh hone this one off uh, on something yeah i mean at least he didn't write it up as a suicide so that was a plus yeah um but there wasn't really too much for him to to screw up on this one because they did find that she was shot but they didn't know that until she got to the crime lab because it was a uh, it was a 22 round, a short, out of a pistol, and it uh, it penetrated the scalp. But it was it was between the the scalp and the, and the skull, so it didn't penetrate. But it did concuss her, right? It knocked her out. Yeah. And so that's our theory. Our theory is that she was shot at the house thought she was dead and then transported and dumped. And then when they either opened the trunk or whatever, they realized she wasn't dead. And then, so they had to pull her out and run over her and that's in crushed her pelvis. And that's what, that was the cause of death. I know this is probably more information than either of you want to discuss, but do either of you feel like the, the, the condom with the semen in it, was that from the perpetrator or was that, something that may have been planted stage. Yes. I'll let the lane take that. I mean, um, that was suggested that it was staged. It's awful convenient. But, you just, you murdered someone and then you don't have that, <laughs> the thought to clean up after yourself and take the evidence away. True. But some of these people that are considered suspects in our eyes aren't the sharpest, no, 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 the no, they're not. After reading some of those interviews, I was like, did you really say that? And they wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. So they weren't the sharpest knives in the drawer. So, you know, anything's possible. Um, and then, you know, it seemed like a lot of the players also had some kind of a crush on a uh, Gail. So you never know in the heat of the moment, they just may have, you know, saw an opportunity i'm not real sure or thought a little bit about revenge that she didn't want to go out with him maybe i do have to question the use of a condom i mean back in 1980 there wasn't aids i mean there were you know stds but i don't think there was any reason to suspect that so otherwise uh and you're not worried about you know her or getting pregnant no that's that was the other thing that yeah, it's just baffling. So that suggests possibly a staged scene. And these people who were, I call them the, you know, Dixie Cartel or whatever you want to call them, which, you know, they were just organized crooks to themselves. Right. But uh, one of their MOs was setting up a patsy. Right. So that was just their book for hits. These hits, when they went down, it was either going to be a suicide or a straight killing with a patsy or maybe a, and then the patsy, you know, suicides himself. Right. It's so, always convenient for the dimwit to have, you know, gotten my right. wheeled after dr- drinking too much or right, something like yeah. that. So, yeah, all of that is, you know, what we're considering. That's very interesting. Another thing is her jeans. Okay, so her jeans and, and underwear being off suggests that she was sexually assaulted, right? So was her jeans and underwear removed to justify or support the the condom? 
she also had fecal material in her underwear. Well, and that would how did that get there? That's what I was going to say. That that's going to be and, one of those head scratching moments of well, if she was sexually assaulted, what is you know what is that being? Well, it suggests that she lost control of her of her bowel before she was killed or she was crushed because she was crushed without her jeans on because there's abrasions on her skin that indicate that. Right. Uh, so it leaves, I think, you know, it leaves the assumption that she may have lost control when she was shot and concussed or knocked out. And that's another thing I I had not thought about when until you brought it up about that not penetrate. I had read it not penetrating the skull and and things like that, but it didn't dawn on me till you mentioned that earlier. They, I mean, she would have bled like she was shot in the head. So I mean that that right, you know, and there was no blood pool right at where she was found. So that suggests two crime scenes. Correct. Yeah, that's that supports our theory that she was shot. <clears throat> excuse me that she was shot at uh, the house and then moved to where she was dumped. You know, I had kind of hinted at it, but the laundry list of suspects, I guess, or, or players, let's just call them players in the game. That'd be an easier way to, to kind of keep this. Well, you've got the Frizzells, or is it was it the Frizzells they were renting from? Yeah. Okay, so do you think they're tied anyway? into it or or do you think they were just clueless and no i think i think they're all and there's a, there's there's a witness testimony that says as much there's witness testimony that says exactly what happened right right but it was never scrutinized it was never pursued so that it does suggest it doesn't say exactly that Barry Frizzell was involved in it but it heavily suggests that he was. And, you know, when we discuss this in Ozark Mountain Murder, we'll get into that. Hey, guys, Arlo here. And if you are struggling with the old caffeine in the morning, I have got the fix for you. It is called Magic Mind. And it is just a little two-ounce shot that you drink with your coffee or your energy drinks in the morning. It is chocked full of greatness. And it will get you focused, and it really actually has the L-theanine, and that lowers your cortisol hormone, which helps absorb that caffeine that you're intaking. Now, Magic Mind has nootropics, adaptogens, matcha green tea, and 12 magical ingredients. That matcha boosts your energy. The adaptogens help with relaxation, and the nootropics keep you focused. A bonus is that it has vitamins C and D along with the echinacea to help your immunity. So head over to magicmind.co backslash brews and enter the promo code BREWS20. That is brews20, BREWS20. And that will give you a 20% off coupon for either a one time purchase or or subscription to a monthly dose of Magic Mind. We're going to get into what the possible motive really was and whether it was her informing, what was it 
someone else informed and sold her out? Was it her stealing uh, a large amount of dope from a pot farm? All of that surfaced in the investigation, but it was never taken to ground. And that's what Elaine and I are doing. Right. And that's one thing that with y'all being near, it's kind of the the curse of our our format. You know, we, we are hitting cases every week. Some of them, like the one we originally had you on, Shameless Plug here, episode 35, those run sometimes a couple of episodes and then we're off to the next case. And so I'm kind of very envious about how you, you know, something local like that, you can get in there and really immerse yourself and do those because I feel like it's been so long. A lot of these people kind of think that they've gotten away with it. So their guards going to be down a little bit. If you start asking questions, you know, and, and especially having Elaine there with you when you're asking questions, that's kind of going to disarm them as well. So, you know, it's just, hey, man, you can talk to me. I, you know, her sister's looking for things, and so it, that's the angle yeah. that that really. Well, that's the that's the trick, right? Right. Yeah, that's the that's the game inside the game. <laughs> right is is getting people to talk. Right. Right, and that is you know for any ins- aspiring either law enforcement or private investigators out there, the key is the the environment and. What do you think it's going to take to get this person to talk to you when they clearly have never wanted to talk about this over the last 42 years? Is that they were scared to death. Right. Right. And that's a, and you talk about a game inside a game. That's another game inside a game is the culture of fear in this region. Right. It's rampant. I mean, years and years. We've run into people. Yeah. Yeah. We've run into it with Sheriff Baker. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can't tell you. You know, we covered <laughs> Billy Jean's case and yes. coach what within the last two months, about once a week, we'll have someone that has found Billy Jean's case because unfortunately, no one care- covered her case except us. And they'll, you know, get on, like you said, they'll first thing they'll do is get on Google and see if there's anything in Billy Jean's case. Well, the, one of the top two searches is our podcast because. No one investigated it. And yeah, so Michael Whiteley, Michael Whiteley with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, who's he's since passed, but he, he is what I consider that he was a journalist, but he is one of the true heroes in Arkansas for being fearless. Yeah. Those, and, those scathing yeah. articles he wrote about uh, Sheriff Baker while he was still alive yes. proves that he had uh, quite the backbone. Yes, and I've uh, I've managed to get to know the guy that was assisting him. He was young and just an assistant, carried his stuff for him, really, uh, especially and did a lot of the research in the Madison County uh, courthouse. And uh, he describes it. He sets it for you in the stories, you know, where people would walk up to Whiteley just when he's walking out of the courthouse to his car, you know, threatening his life, his family's life. And Baker would be there. He'd just say, leave him alone. Just leave him alone. And that's crazy. So, I mean, it is yeah. absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's movie stuff. It is. Yeah. And we had, I had talked to, we had, we've not been able to, not trying to hijack this episode, but we've, the thing is with y'all, I'm trying to tie this back into y'all being local. We, 
we get emails from people that are around her case and we're, we can't go sit down face to face with them. If I could just get in the, even if coach and I could travel a couple of hours to get there and sit down with some of these, we've had, um, some family members contact us about her case. We've had the other side of the family member cousin. So it's starting to work its way into that nucleus, but I mean, he's Baker still rules that yeah. county in that region from the yeah. from the grave. Yeah, we've had, you know, we've had people tell us straight. Oh, sorry. No, we've good. had people tell us straight up that they're not willing to talk. Absolutely, they, they're, they're like, don't don't mention me, don't say anything, don't do this because I don't want anything to happen to me. Yeah, and I'll be honest with you, this. Yeah, I met him. I never met him. Rather, I never met Sheriff Baker. I was in the army on active duty during that era in the nineties when, before he died. But I have uh, close family members who lived in that County and I have good friends who, you know, knew him personally, went hunting with him, went to deer camp with him. And I understand that because they would be the first one to tell you, say, look, he wasn't an angel, but he took care of the people in Madison County. Right. So with that, he built a strong sense of loyalty to the citizens there and therefore the witnesses. I don't think Baker had anything to do with Billy Jean's death. I think he knew who did. And he also had other skeletons in the closet. And when Michael Whiteley wrote that article or those two articles, he, he couldn't stay. And that's just my opinion. Right. And, and when we, I say he couldn't stay, he yeah, himself I'm, was taken out. Yeah. Right. And that's that's kind of the angle that we've we've kind of gone back and forth in Messenger with some of these people that'll contact us is he always they said one of the things in the Billy Jean case was while like you said, he took care of the people in the county, one of the things that he kind of harped on was not driving through that low or high water bridge because he had seen enough people get swept away and things come through there. And they said that it was eerie for him to have attempted that, knowing that's what he told every, you know, hey, when, the, yeah. when we get a little bit of rain, y'all stay away from that bridge or you're going to die. And- yeah, it's actually, and not because you know how things get misconstrued. From what I've heard time and time and time again is he never wore a seatbelt. Right, but that night, mysteriously, he had put his seatbelt on. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the, that's the crook. And, you know, and y'all can cut this out, maybe use it on another episode, <laughs> but the, real quick. And then we can get back. Cause I know we only have so much of Elaine's time that her husband allows her, <laughs> but the, the, I, I, uh, in 2010, my, uh, then employer was doing this big world war two veteran memorial thing. And I was honored to go and pick up a world war two veteran from the Huntsville, actually Kingston and drive him to this event. And, and he was 94 years old then. Dang. Right. And he was as sharp, sharp as a knife. And he told me, he said, I'd known, I knew, uh, Ralph Baker his whole life, knew him as a boy. And he says he was murdered and he never wore a seatbelt. Just yep. as plain, just as like he was telling me the sun's in the sky. And with that, that's what lent the credibility to that theory for me. Yeah, and then you know, there's there's other theories out there, and we could we could hijack this whole episode about theories on Billy Jean's case. But um, 
and we did revisit it and we had made a formal apologies because those articles we kind of used as our uh our bread and butter Source. there yeah mm-hmm. and so but you know people disagreed with them oh yeah oh yeah that was an yeah. understatement we we yeah. got some of our first first hate mail coach uh you want to speak on some of the hate mail there that Shall I get some Arkansas RAS coach? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I may have said a few things I shouldn't have, and I got some pretty strongly worded criticisms. But we we work, we learn from it. We're hey, more tactical than the first time. No, 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 no. <laughs> but you know, it did kind of drive home that we are reaching an audience that's not just me uh, and him anymore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah, let's the get thing, us. Yeah, I was just going to say the thing about Gail. Gail is just another case, and we're just fortunate to have a case file, to have some living witnesses. Now, granted, they're peripheral witnesses because the folks that we think might have done it have been called. Right. But the objective is to find out who and why, and uh, that possibility is still out there. So we touched on Frizzell, um Elaine, was there anything about the Frizzells that kind of stood out to you as a as a suspect or someone on the fringes of the this case? Other than the fact that they weren't interviewed and they lived in the house, um, that was a big one for me. I I couldn't imagine how Gail lived at a house with these people and they weren't interviewed when she was murdered. Um, but I think. It was also in the case file where um, Barry Fazell's lawyer actually requested that his um, pills be returned from the search warrant. So I read that um, too, and I was like, "Boy, you got some stones on you." <laughs> hey, y'all, y'all kicked in the wrong door. Can I have my dope back? That was my neighbor. <laughs> Don't take me all. Yeah. <laughs> that definitely lent to um, Barry probably being somewhere in the drug realm. Yeah. and he's uh, in that maybe, orbit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the fact that he may have had some insight in the um, the police department, considering, like I said, there was really no interview with him or his wife uh, in regards to what happened that night. And it's not like they were not spoken of. Like, there was... I want to say in the case file when they're they're conducting the I guess the initial investigation and they're interviewing people, they come across a couple of people that had called the Frizzell's house and left messages for either Gail or for Ray, and so they knew by just some of the interviews that they had conducted in their I guess the first couple of weeks that the Frizzell's they live you know. Gail and Ray oh, yeah. was underneath them. So yeah, I mean it's it's crazy. One of the one of the interesting factors in this case that has to be, you know, considered. So her homicide happened on October sixteenth, nineteen eighty. November, I think it was the eighth. I could be wrong on that. Was the national election right? It was the same election that Reagan was elected, and so it was a big election. Well. Washington County Sheriff's Office was on the ballot. Oh. And the, 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 the sheriff that had been Washington County's in that uh, office since, I think, 1974, Herb Marshall, he was the first Republican elected to uh, 
this, any citywide office in Fayetteville since Reconstruction. He was a Green Beret in Vietnam, and he was a law and order sheriff. But towards the end of his career, he, he really faced some pretty stern opposition and allegations and so forth and so on, and he lost his seat two weeks after this homicide. Within, he just kind of went road, right, which is retired on active duty. He just, you know, did the inventory and the handover stuff on the whole month of December and then changed the office in January. And then with that, you had turnover, right? You had a lot of folks that the new sheriff didn't want from the previous administration. Right, and, so, and you see that in a lot of these smaller communities yeah. and, and we've covered cases in Louisiana where it had had happened and it gets cases get pushed to the back burner and but yeah go ahead no I mean that's it I mean and things just priorities change right, right. people start focusing on election promises uh, and plus who was this girl she's from Mountain Bird nobody knows her here you didn't have any big you know money dogs walking up and saying we want this you know, clear. We want this this person found. You didn't have the media beating down their door because nobody, you know, the, the Vaughts was a farm family from Crawford County. Right. So all of that played into this thing not getting solved. But it was also buried, right? It didn't even hit the neutral level as far as interest. It was like in the negative. Right. It was purposefully, willfully buried. It was the coldest and of the cold cases over there. Exactly. Right. So, so you, that's what makes it so interesting. Now, getting to another, we got two more I wanted to touch on. Jody Balkum and, sure. and Randy Wyman. Jody, and I can't remember. Jody's saying, still alive. Okay. So Jody, if you're hearing this, give Coach a shout. He'd, he'd like to <laughs> just call him up. Yeah. Coach would love to talk to you. If uh, you are available, Jody, he uh, loves the uh, Fayetteville area. So, yeah, please give him a call. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Jody's still alive. He was he was one of Ray's buddies, you know. They just sold dope and drank beer and chased women. Now, was, and, it, was it Jody that was trying to help him take his truck to get it fixed, or was that someone else? Elaine? That was Jody. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, w- I was trying to think that that whole dynamic, it's almost like you had alluded to, Elaine. Sometimes they're not the brightest in the interview process. And I'm like, y'all, <laughs> you two bumbling idiots, if we could get someone in there with half a brain to just ask the right question, then this thing probably would have been solved. Because it was, it would have been so easy to, you know, separate them kind of thing. But that kind of ties into what y'all are going to cover. Um, so I won't, I won't go into that. But now was it Jody? There was something in the case filing. You can correct me if, if I'm way off here. It wasn't it alleged that one night Gail and Ray had gone to, to get some some drugs or some beer from somebody and they stopped by a liquor store and they picked up somebody and they took them to another house. That was the night that she was killed. And we have our theory on why they were doing that. This is Ray and Jody. Elaine, you want to touch on that? So, yeah, 
the night that Gail was killed, um, Jody calls Ray, says he needs a ride to go do his drug deal. And they end up going house to house to liquor store to another house. They pick up another person, go to another. So we kind of just got the feeling they were trying to gain as many alibis as possible for where they were that night and um, trying to be seen by as many people as possible. Um, but. When I started drawing a map of where they were going, it's like they always ended up really around the house with Gail and where Barry lived. So they were still around the area, but um, they were definitely seen by several people that night going around looking for dope. Um, But it seemed like they never were really able to find it until um, they ended up on Dixon that night. Right. And that was the the thing with that night in question and so they're driving they're driving her jeep and just trying to basically and be she's seen. supposed to be making beans right and he's gonna be back in time for the beans to be done yeah and cornbread yeah. cornbread was in the oven burnt and so that she, right she, there is she, a she southern was with cornbread in the oven any god-fearing southern woman is not going to put <laughs> beans on and burn her cornbread you <laughs> I mean, from just, your mouth to God's ears. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this was someone that disarmed her just by seeing them come up. And so, you know, and we chase this rabbit back around the hole again, but, um, you know, she's, she's not expecting to go anywhere. She's expecting him to be back pretty soon. She's got the beans cooking. She's got the cornbread going to come out when the beans are done. Everything's going, they're going to have a great meal. So, and he's out running around, st- stopping, you know, at every drug dealer's house in they, the Ozarks. He had went and picked someone up, but that wasn't one of the people that he picked up. Weren't they looking for speed? And he didn't have any speed, but he, hey, I know Jimmy over here, and and then they stopped at another. Like y'all said, they're making sure that they're stopping and getting receipts so that they have this paper trail and witness statements that oh, we were nowhere near the house. Yeah, so they went to pick up um, a friend, and that friend wanted, um, it may have been speed, I'm not real quite sure what they were looking for, Um, so they were going to go to a drug dealer's house, so they did stop at the liquor store to get some drinks on the way to that drug dealer's house. Um, the statements are that he went up to the door to knock, but Jody and Ray stayed in the Jeep, so they didn't actually get out. Right. That's, that, was the, that was the thing that kind of caught my attention was why are they, why are you transporting this, this goofball? Well, let me just talk as somebody <laughs> who bought dope in the early 80s. Right? <laughs> so back then, if you were looking for pot, right? Right. And it was like, I know, I know so-and-so's got, knows somebody. Then you go pick up so-and-so. It's like, hey, man, you know anybody's got any pot? And he's like, yeah, I think Billy Joe's got, got a pound he's splitting <laughs> up. And then, but Billy Joe ain't going to talk to you. So you got to take homeboy with you to go visit Billy Joe and see if he can go in and get it. I, there was a, 
I come in on the tail end of that. So we, uh, there were some Friday nights and some Saturday nights in our little town that you find yourself nowhere near, uh, where you should be. And you're, you're asking yourself, is this really how my life's going to end in the back of a Camaro? (laughs) Yeah. My mama's not going to be proud. So yeah, I I can. And I hope I I hope I put on new drawers. Yeah, today. that's right. I ain't gonna embarrass her. I'm not gonna. I showered before I left the house now. But uh, no, yeah, yeah, that is that. And I guess let's you know. And if there's anybody else that I've I've left off, feel free to bring them up. But Randy Wyman, how does he play into this jigsaw well, puzzle? I, I think uh, Elaine's got a good uh, read on Mr. Wyman. So Randy Wyman. Oh, where do we start? Um, so if, I believe at the time of Gail's murder, he was actually involved with um, Ray Foreman's ex-wife at the time. I think that's right. Um, so, but he had also had a little bit of a crush on Gail Vaught. Um, so that's right. That's right. there was kind of a little bit of a, Quasi uh, love triangle. Even, yeah, I can't even say it was a triangle. It was more of a square going on here. Um, but uh, Randy was also, um, I guess, upset because he claimed that Ray had stole some some marijuana plants from him, and so he had tried to get some money back from Ray regarding those. And, um, it seemed as if he brought a couple of guys over to the Frizzell house, trying to get that money back, um, just a week or so before Gail's murder. Um, but he wasn't really questioned too in depth by the police at the time, um, regarding his whereabouts that night or what he was doing. But it seemed as if, oh, he had a, a grudge against Ray is what the way they tried to put it out as because he says Ray beat his ex-wife who he was now in a relationship with and he had stolen pot from him and he was trying to get that back or the money back from that. Well, you know, if he'd have just stopped with saving the woman's honor, he might've had a little credibility, but you know, (laughs) you lose all credibility when you're like, I I gave him a couple of plants and he just never paid me for them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, there was a little suspicion around uh, Randy's um, motives that could have come across at the time. Right. And that, that was the one thing that I noticed in my just green wet behind the ears dive into that case file is how every time it seemed like he opened his mouth, he kind of either a he like self-incriminated himself or B he showed how not smart he was. Um, and I'm trying to be nice. So, uh, <laughs> that's something that w- doesn't usually happen on this, this podcast is me trying to be nice, but that whole Randy is a, uh, I think Randy could have his own couple of episodes for y'all's podcast. I mean, what did Randy do today? And then y'all could just, <laughs> you know, yeah. just go off on yeah. what, what Randy had going on. So, was there anybody else that's kind of in the, the orbit of, um, I guess, not suspects, but key players? That's that- about it, really. I mean, there's others on the periphery. Right. Um, 
but not directly involved with uh, in Gale's, you know, sphere, if you will. But uh, yeah, we look forward to uh, sharing what we've uh, you know dug up, and we're going to develop some theories, right? And uh, we've got a couple mentioned, uh, one or two on here. Got a couple of other ones that we're going to get into, and hopefully. You know, we're going to solve this thing. We're going to solve this thing in uh, the first inaugural season of Ozark Mountain Murder. And if uh, that's the plan anyway. Well, we wish y'all all the luck in the world, you know, and, and like I said, anything that we can do to help y'all, we can. You know, we're, we're roughly 10 hours away, but uh, <laughs> Coach is learning the westbound and down song. And uh, he's going to. That's really good Lord with beer. Right. Now, that's why the good Lord invented duck season. That's right. That's right. a reason to come to Arkansas. Beer and duck season, you know, even, and now that uh, Elaine has um, kind of let the cat out of the bag that she's a bass fisherman, I mean, that's another thing. You know, you can bass yeah. fish almost year-round. I mean, you can get me out there pretty quickly. That's a fact. Well, I, was no, just, just, I was just about to say, I do have a bath boat in the yard, and I'm only about five seconds away from the ramp. So, well, there you um, go. There's always here in the fridge. Got a bass so. boat and a Maytag. And Coach can operate a dip net like y'all have never seen. <laughs> All I need is a good dip man. That's, hey, he Damn is he, he is your man. He I'm works for pennies on the dry. dollar. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't have a lot of pennies, but I do have a lot of beer in the refrigerator. There so. you go. You'll keep. That's all you need is just have Coach sit on his own cooler, and he he'll just switch <laughs> arms when one tires out. Damn straight. <laughs> and then use the good arm when a, when a fish is on the hook. That's right. That's right. So, is there anything that uh, y'all would like to kind of highlight that your podcast is going to dive deeper into that we've covered tonight, or well? You guys have done an amazing job covering, you know, these cases. I know some people try wait, to wait, 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 say that one more time. I want <laughs> well, say that one more, just one more time. <laughs> well, I tell you what, y'all have done a fabulous job. <laughs> of, We're gonna cut of, that out. Uh, That's gonna be our new promo. Telling telling <laughs> the story of this crazy place called Arkansas. Now it's a blissful place. It's a great place, but there's some dark. Uh, Corners and y'all have done very good at bringing those to light, and uh, so obviously that's why we wanted to uh, share your air with you and to kind of tell you about what we're doing with uh, Ozark Mountain Murder, which is coming. It's in pre-production now. We hope to get that out to folks on uh, Spotify podcast here next couple of months. But what you're going to get with this is you're going to get a better understanding of this area and the kind of crime and corruption for both, you know, extremely wealthy people, extremely well-known politicians. And I'm not even going to talk about the former president. He will never come up in this podcast. It's a, it's a shame I can't knows. do a, it's a shame I can't do a good impersonation or I would tell right. you that he, he would yeah. be in the bass boat with us in his voice. But. <laughs> I yeah. did not have sexual relations. <laughs> <laughs> With that dip net, so, I caught the biggest fish you have ever seen. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so that's what we're going to dig into. Elaine is the uh, is the brain, you know, the brain child of the operation, and uh, 
So hopefully between the two of us and recorded audio, recorded interviews that we've conducted, we'll be able to roll this story out and, uh, and solve it before we finish with it. And that's ultimately, you know, one of the greatest things while we didn't necessarily have a key role in it, we just, we were gifted Rebecca Gould's case, but the day that you find out they had arrested someone, I remember it wasn't long after that, that they had kind of said that he was going to plead guilty. And, uh, I found directions to where she was buried and, um, just overcome with emotions, never knowing her, but just feeling like, just in that justice. small, yeah, justice in that small little window that we got. And and yeah. I tell people this all the time, that picture that's used in her case, she reminds me of a, a young lady that I coached in softball who passed away uh, at a very young age in a car accident. And so I, I think that's why I kind of gravitate towards her case more. But it is, and, I, and, and we wish y'all all the luck. And any, like I said, anything we can do to help y'all, you know, if you need a fresh set of eyes. Yes. Some comedy relief, you know, give us a call. We, uh, yeah, you need a meme. I just want, I just want to watch, watch coach shoot a duck. Oh, hey, it's a, it's a, it's a sight to be seen. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so, if anything, besides solving Gail's murder, if we can make that happen, icing on the cake, icing on the cake yeah. right there. All right. Well, uh, Billy and Elaine, thank y'all so much for coming on and, um, like you heard both of them say, they are going to start a serial podcast and they are going to dive deep in this case. And we can't wait. We will be promoting it here. So once it hits the airways, you know, we'll we'll promote it on our social media as well to get y'all up and going and get you a big following. So like I said, yeah, we'll we wish y'all all three hundred of our listeners. That's right. <laughs> Man, you serious? <laughs> well, yeah. he's he's overshooting it by about two fifty, but <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, if anything we can do for y'all, let us know. And um, like I always say, Coach, you got anything else? Oh, you know I don't. Uh, deuces. <laughs> <laughs>